Good morning. Thank you for those of you that prayed for me uh, on uh, a reasonably long uh, absence. Uh, thank you for your Christian virtue, uh, for permitting a new man to be away for two weeks. Uh, please do continue with that spirit even for one month. It's a Christian thing. Matthew chapter 5. And as you turn to Matthew chapter 5, may I encourage us to buy those calendars, not just for ourselves, but for our neighbors. When we are in Kabwe, we got several phone calls by people within Kabwe who had bought calendars from Kabwata and Lusaka Baptist Church because they were asking, is there any church here that is a Baptist we can go to? And so they referred them to us, and the evangelistic tool was simply a calendar. So read what their theme said, they read what they're about, and they inquired where they could find a similar church. I think that if we distributed those calendars, I can guarantee you, that there will be people that will be interested to ask a little more uh, questions. And thankfully, uh, the team responsible has put all the phones for the elders and deacons, so they are not uh, hidden anymore. Uh, please do buy, not just for yourself, uh, but buy for others. Surely we can manage 10 calendars each for 10 people only. Uh, if you have difficulties to say come to church, just 10 calendars, and then Elder Zimba will tell you how much that is in dollars. Uh, just 10. Uh, please let them finish this week. We need not them be there. I'm told there are only 200. Uh, 150. Surely we are more than 150. 10 of us and we'll run short. Uh, so let's rush to the office and buy 10 of them. I've already bought. Not 10, but I've already bought. Uh, please do buy. Matthew and chapter 5. A reading that or section on the Beatitudes from verse 1 to 11. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Let's pray. We are grateful, our Father in heaven, for these glorious blessings that are declared, that are announced, that are stated 
for those that are in your son, Jesus Christ. Those are Father who live according to these virtues. Those who are saved. We thank you for this announcement regarding their standing. And we pray, therefore, that if any does not share in these blessings because they are not in Christ, that they will be made a father to desire to have these blessings and they will be caused to look to him, stand in him, be united to him, that they then can say that these blessings are theirs as well. So we ask that you bless us even as we reflect on these blessings this morning. Grant that we will know what it is to be a Christian and to be enriched, being united to your Son. Our Father, we ask in the name of your Son, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. We began considering the Sermon on the Mount a while ago. I think we've considered this would be the fourth or the third week of considering the Sermon on the Mount. And as a recap, so that we connect very quickly to what we'll be considering this morning, we have so far considered the overall theme of the Sermon on the Mount. It is a manifest of setting out the nature of life Jesus follows in the context of life in the Kingdom of Heaven. We have considered the compulsion of the Sermon on the Mount to ask the question, who is giving these instructions in the Sermon on the Mount? We also observe that the Sermon on the Mount challenges complacency in Christian holiness and service. Then under the title, the standing or status of those who are Christ-like, their status is that they are blessed, we define the word blessed and observe that the word blessed is not a wish or a desire or a prayer but a declaration, an announcement of the status of Christians and then under the same heading we consider the design of the Beatitudes and that they are an imitation of the future, an intimation of the future that they are consolations in times of difficulties and that they are designed to rectify or correct the disastrous mistakes of a blind and carnal world. And also, the fact that the Beatitudes as well as the whole Sermon on the Mount are a summons to the unsaved to come to Christ. I'm trusting that we know those of us who've packed this sign. Uh, that might be somebody's car announcing, check me out. This morning, we commence the treatment of the individual Beatitudes. This morning, we commence the treatment of the individual Beatitudes, and verse 3 is the first. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But before we treat this, an advert. For you to take interest in these uh, blessings, basically begin to think in advance, trust that uh, you'll be available as we follow through these, uh, partly what verse 5 means. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
that raises the question, where will Christians be ultimately? What does that blessing mean? That blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth. When Jesus in the Gospel of John said to the disciples, including us, I'm going to prepare a place, and when I do return, I will take you there. Isn't that a contradiction? What does Jesus mean? We shall inherit the earth. Is this Jehovah's Witness theology? Uh, maybe we should be Jehovah's Witnesses. But just reflect on what that means. But there is another interesting one. Verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. How do we reconcile this? You cannot see God and leave. The reality that God is spirit, even when we go into glory, we won't be able to see him except the sun, and if the sun say, they shall see God. What does that mean? Is it a lie? Or was Jesus simply desiring to impress us? So as we reflect on the Beatitudes and they are connected, uh, please take interest to be available as we run through these ones. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Like to observe several uh, lessons, affirmations, challenges as we reflect on that Beatitude. Firstly, observe the importance of its being placed first. It's not an accident that it comes first. It is deliberate. The importance of this chronological priority of the attitude of virtue in the scheme of the Beatitudes of this particular one. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And notice that in a sense, that is the beatitude in terms of the promise or the blessing that closes the beatitude. Verse 10, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It is the same in verse 11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The importance of this chronological priority the importance of this order, that it's not simply number one, it is number one in implication. And here is the implication, unless this is true, the rest cannot be true for anyone. Unless the first beatitude is true, everything else falls off. In other words, you can exhibit to some degree the second beatitude, the third beatitude, the fourth, and still not be saved. You can show some level of mercy. You can mourn. You can be meek to some degree. There is some sense of purity you can demonstrate, but if you're not pure in spirit, you are not saved. 
So this governs all the Beatitudes. Glyked and preempty, what we'll be saying later, that this is true for every Christian. If you are saved, this is true. But this also marks the difference between a saved person and an unbeliever. If you are not saved, this is not true. It has never been. It must be true for you. Notice that not only does this beatitude head this section of the Sermon on the Mount, but it closes it in regarding the promise that is given. Spiritual poverty is both commanded and commended because it is the basis of our Christian experience. Christian poverty, that is spiritual poverty, is both commanded and commended because it is the basis, it is the foundation, it is the anchor on which you build, it is the foundation on which your Christian experience and reality is blessed. I will say it again. If you are not poor in spirit, you are not saved. And the kingdom of heaven is not yours. What is yours is the kingdom of the evil one. It doesn't matter which virtues you saw, how good sometimes you look, what good things you do. If you are not poor in spirit, you do not belong to Christ. So spiritual poverty is both commanded and commanded because it is the basis of our Christian experience. Not a one-time event by which a person enters the kingdom of heaven. It's a continuous Christian experience. You, we must continually be poor. Not just once. But as a lifestyle, this must be demonstrated. So in terms of the chronology, the importance of this is simply this. This is not, the, this is not only the initial this governs the Christian life. This is a characteristic that must characterize you, that must show that you are truly saved. Without this, everything else falls off. That's how important. Not only that it comes first, but it, it's on this that everything else is built. Because without this, you cannot repent. Without this, you can't trust God. Without this, you'll be self-sufficient. Without this, you'll be the most arrogant towards God. And you'll announce no need of God. Unless you are poor in spirit, you've never repented of your sins. Unless you are poor in spirit, you've never trusted God for salvation. Unless you are poor in spirit, you do not trust him for a holy life. This must be true. If this is this important, what then does it mean to be poor in spirit? The meaning of poor in spirit. 
one would assume that it's very straightforward what it does not mean in Matthew. And I don't think that's what primarily it means in Luke. It does have some indication of it. But even where, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, without a qualification, it does not mean you are blessed simply because you are poor materially. Poverty is not a blessing. It's not. If it were, a lot of you would be disqualified. Poverty is not a blessing. Now, obviously, there are churches that uh, even ask us uh, to vow, uh, to swear to the vow of poverty because it's understood to be a blessing. Simply because you do not have enough money. Simply because you do not have a good house. Simply because you do not have a car. Simply because you do not have clothes does not necessarily mean you are blessed. Otherwise, no one would want to come out of poverty. Everybody does want to come out of poverty. Except those who have sown to poverty, but even then it's deception. One comment on what the text does not mean. Poor in spirit does not mean poor materially. If this is what it meant, men. Now notice I'm saying men of you. That's excluding me because poor material is spiritual as well. You would be disqualified. Thankfully it doesn't. Thankfully it doesn't mean poor materially. The word translated poor, and that is, if you do a study of words in the Bible translated poor from the New Testament as well as old, they mean various things. Some of them clearly mean poor in terms of material. Some of them mean poor in terms of lack in knowledge. Some of them mean poor in terms of economic context. This one, the word translated poor in our text means a person so poor, whether this is material, spiritual, social, whatever context, but that the meaning of this is that this person is so poor that such a one lives not by his own labor or industry, but on other people's charities or donations. That this poverty is basically saying the person of whom it is said, they do not live by sustaining themselves. They completely depend on somebody or others for them to live. So that when it's then related to spirit, you understand that they are not able to survive unless they depend on somebody else. That if they can say, even in the smallest degree, that they sustain themselves, then in the context of this beatitude, they are not poor in spirit. They are poor in some sense, 
They might have a nice house, everything, but poor probably in knowledge, poor in exposure, poor in other areas of life. This one underlines that you're not able to sustain you. You're not able to support you. You're not able to be alive unless some people sustain you. This poverty is not what we see on Fridays in town, where we have these supposedly poor people uh, go to Muslim shops and they are waiting for a one kwacha or two kwacha, and then they go home. Uh, they are not sustained by what they get on Friday. Something else sustains them. So they do not completely depend on that charity or arm they receive on Friday. This poverty underlines can survive on your own. To be poor in spirit is to have a humble opinion of ourselves. It is to be aware of our spiritual deficiency our spiritual lack, our spiritual insufficiency, our spiritual inadequacy or paucity regarding righteousness to meet the standard for salvation and continuing enabling to be acceptable before God. Poverty in spirit means that we are aware of our spiritual deficiency, of our spiritual lack. We are completely insufficient, terribly inadequate, absolutely poor regarding righteousness. We do not have sufficient righteousness to come before God and say, look at my righteousness, and it's deserving acceptance. No one. We are in this regard poor, insufficient. But not only at entry into salvation, we still do not have a righteousness of our own. Even in pursuit of holiness to say, look at me. I am a genius, ain't I? I work hard, and therefore I am holy all the time. We are reminded this morning in Hebrews that God is still working. Philippians, the reason you are able to work, he's working. His grace is causing us to respond a certain way. When that is withdrawn, we drop down completely unable to pursue holiness. We are completely insufficient. To be poor in spirit is to personally acknowledge of your spiritual bankruptcy before God. To be poor in spirit is to know that before God on matters of your heart, your soul, your eternity, your salvation, you are completely bankrupt. You are a company that is run down negatively. Nothing is able to bring you up unless God brings you up. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who acknowledge 
that they are spiritually deficient. They spiritually lack. They are spiritually inadequate to meet the standards of God. Now and before that they acknowledge that they have no money in their account to say to God we can do business because I have something to my account. To be poor in spirit in this context is to, re is to recognize that one is completely and utterly destitute in the realm of needs of the soul. And I hope that uh, you following the deliberate adjectives. Completely destitute, absolutely bankrupt, completely insufficient. There is not a single iota that you can say, I am a little bit somehow. No, you completely zero. Poor in spirit. You need God to be sustained. You need God to live. You need God for you to continue existing. The poor in spirit are bankrupt before God. It is recognition of the lack of spiritual resources resulting in a genuine complete dependence on God. You realize you have no resources of your own. The Apostle Peter will tell us this, those that are saved, that all we need for life and godliness is God provided. It's all given. We do not invent our own spiritual resources. All the food we need, if you have a certain school, all the means of grace are exactly that, means of grace. Graciously, undeservedly, not your invention, given by God. And the spiritual poverty is a recognition that you and I lack spiritual resources. And because we lack spiritual resources, we ultimately must look outside ourselves and look to somebody, a being that is able to provide these resources. No human being can. No human being has. No angel can. No angel has. There is only one source, God. The poor in spirit are blessed. What they are is the kingdom of heaven. The beatitude is a call to humility. When we come to God, we must realize our own sin and our spiritual emptiness and poverty. It is a rebuke to the self-righteous, to the proud in their souls, those who think that they do not really need God. It's a rebuke to such ones. It is an awareness and sensibility to the fact and the reality that we are sinners and that we have no righteousness of our own, and as such we must totally and completely and willingly depend on God for grace, for mercy, to save, to sustain, to keep in salvation. Why did I say in the chronology it's important? Because of what it means. In case, in the many words, you lost 
Here is what this means in simple language. Unless you acknowledge you cannot deal with your sins, you can't be saved. Unless you acknowledge you can't save yourself, you can't be saved. And that's why I say it, that this is foundational. Unless at some point in your life you came to a place where you said, I have struggled with my sins. I have tried my best. And it's not working and it will never work. I have wrestled with my pride. For some reason I thought I was sufficient in and of myself, but I've realized it's not working. There is only one that is able to deal with this. You. One of the things I've been asked to advise on, counsel and pray with, one of them is smoking. Those of you that have smoked before, you know that it's tough to stop smoking. Wait, people, if you want to stop smoking, throw your cigarette in water, then it will lose all the taste and smoke the chaff. It has not worked. And a brother-in-law who has stored, uh, just gathered, just hopeless leaves, roll them into a cigarette, they will not yet you stopped smoking. He tried, it didn't work. The young man in Kabwe was told, go to the chemist, they'll give you a pad, put on your shoulder, your chest, your thigh, it will reduce your appetite. It made it worse. People have been told, there are tablets, replacement, uh, swallow them, it, as long as you do this, you'll be fine. And one came to me and said, look, pastor, I have gone through all this process. I've had a pad, I've smoked stuff that is terrible. If I told you, you'd even vomit. Just want to stop. And I say to him, let's begin at the beginning. Are you sure you are saved? Are you sure you are saved? When we established he was, the next question was, looks like you've been depending on yourself to deal with this issue. Uh, there is somebody that is able to set you free. Unless he lied when he said, when the Son of Man sets you free, you are free. Unless that's a lie, surely he's able. And then he said to me, Pastor, I am ready to do anything and everything. I said to him, this is not anything and everything. This is the only thing. This is all, all this may work. This, if this fails, it is a serious warning. Trust God to deal with your issue. Tell him, I have tried everything. You, you are my only hope. I, I skipped you along the way. I trusted you for salvation, but in a sense, I ignored you on this issue. I want to lose the appetite. I want when I see people smoking, I want to vomit. I want it to disgust me. Tell him. <coughs> One week down the road, he came and said, I, I still can't believe it, but I'm still waiting. It's been one week last I smoked. It's probably three years today. When you realize you do not have resources of your own, 
there is a savior that can set you free. Oh, but if you are a young man, a young woman, you know one of the things you wrestle with is pornography. Again, young women, young men, come and say, Pastor, try it. You know, sometimes I don't watch, I don't go to buy, you know, but these internet just pop up. You don't have resources to deal with it. There is one that is able to do with this. There is what is called, maybe in your life, a besetting sin. That you've wrestled with it. You've tried your best. But that's what you've done. Your best. And guess what? Your best is not good enough. You must be this. Poor. Absolutely unable to survive on your own. Go to the Savior and tell him you have all the resources. You're the only one who is able Enable me. Maybe you even think you are a Christian, but then you realize the life others are living is not true for you. You still continue to wrestle and fight, and you don't enjoy the Christian faith. Maybe the question is this Are you sure you completely depend on God? Unless this is true, you are not saved. Those who come to Christ for salvation are those who say, I can't save me. I can't save me. I can't save myself. I do not have ability to do this. It's those that are poor, those that are humble, those that say, I am done unless you stretch your hand and enable me to walk. And almost every commentary you read regarding this verse, they will refer you to Luke chapter 18 verse 9, an illustration of the poor in heart. The tax collector and this teacher of the law, this Pharisee. The Pharisee comes, let's go to the text, and notice the absence of poverty in the spirit. Luke 18, we read that, but just notice a sense of religious arrogance. And unfortunately, some of us are religiously arrogant. The fact that you know what the acronym TULIP means does not necessarily mean you are saved. The fact that you know who Augustine was does not mean you are saved. The fact that you know Finney does not mean you are saved. Listen to that text, verse 9 to 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted, and that's the reason for the parable, who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. In the language of the, the beatitude, he was telling this parable to shame those who were not poor in spirit and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One agenda, one Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Just different titles. The Pharisee, 
teacher of the law, religious man, standing by himself. He does not link to others, he's too righteous. Prayed like this. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I thank you that I am different. God, I thank you that I'm a class of my own. I thank you that I know the Bible very well. I thank you that I fast three times a week. I thank you that I sing well. I thank you that I'm eloquent. I thank you that I'm able to deal with the scriptures and open them up. I thank you. I'm not like other men. Notice he's deliberate. This is a Jew. He is not in a category where he compares himself with women. He's not going to say, I thank you, I'm not like other women. No, 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 that's property. Like other men. That's not all. Like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. What's his language? Thank you that I'm the holiest of them all. Now you know me. You know my credentials. Uh, extortioners, you know. I don't extort people. Adultery now, you know. I don't involve... You, you know us, Pharisees. He's not poor in spirit. The problem, beloved, is this. That's many of us. That's many of us. When I went to Tika, one of the things we were warned against was that, look, the fact that you've come here in your first year does not mean you are a theologian. Uh, and Reverend Simco would say, when at the end of your degree, you think you know it all, we've not done our job. Well, at the end of your degree, you must acknowledge you know very little. Oh, but guess what happened? Just the first year. If somebody calls that called us not pastors, we are offended. So I went to Chipubu, Brother Laman thinking, theologian now, uh, theological college of Central Africa. That's this man. You know us. When we start to listen to a sermon, there was no humble spirit to hear what God is saying, but to check out all the technical flaws. He didn't bring out the proposition very well. Now, what was this transition statement again? Now, the illustration was off-tangent. That's this man. Don't we even evaluate prayer, beloved? It's not theological enough. That's not how we pray. No, it must, people must be moved. And so we, we manipulate our voices. Father, we honor your great name. And everybody assumes when we say that, we are spiritual. We are this man. Or we can even sound very baptistic, our sovereign, immortal, eternal, transcendent. All weekends and all we are saying, we are not like others. This man. And 
unless we acknowledge, like the tax collector, he would not even look to heaven. He would not even look to heaven. All he could do was beat his breast. You know, and in a sense, our Bibles kind of lose the emphasis that a Messina had the sense of saying, uh, provides an indefinite article. The sense of, you know, I am a sinner like many others. That was, that was not his thrust. Those of you that are Greek scholars go to the text. There is no article. It's simply this. I am a sinner. I am this sinner, particular one. He is not interested about others. I am the one. I don't know about others, but I am. And here is my plea. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Beloved, unless you've come to Christ like that, unless you've come to Christ and said to him, I am the sinner. There may be others, but I'm talking about me. I've sinned against you. The David style. When confronted by Nathaniel, by his word, and he says, you are the man, you don't justify your sin. You acknowledge it. I have sinned against God. Unless in your life, beloved, that's true, you are not saved. So I ask the question, are you sure you are saved? Are you sure you are poor in spirit? Have you come to Christ and completely fallen at his feet? Counted yourself unworthy to stand before him and all you are able to announce is simply to say, you know me. I am the sinner. I have sinned against you multiple times. Please have mercy. Save. But you say you are saved. Is that the life you continuously live? Or are you, have you gotten to a stage where you think because you are saved, because you know so much or so little, that the little or the so much you know is sufficient for your Christian life? Oh, beloved. Salvation is by grace from first to last. At no point does your work, does your credentials come in. It's all of grace. At every point, we continuously fall at the feet of the Savior and say to him, we will not make it unless. We will not survive unless. We will not succeed unless. We will not call people to yourself unless. We will not stand unless. Who are you trusting today? Yourself? If that's you, you may need to ask the serious question, are you sure you are poor in spirit? Poor in spirit like the parable of the tax collector and the Pharisee is a contrast between those who have confidence in their own righteousness those who trust in themselves that they are righteous and scorn or look down on others or look on others with contempt. It is contrasting those who are proud and inevitably treating others with what the members call imisula. Everybody else is wrong. 
you alone are right. Let me put it this way, beloved. If you never lose a debate, if you never lose an argument, there is probably a problem. Because it means you are always right. And no one is always right. Is there? No. It's okay to lose. It's okay to say you are right. I am wrong. Don't be like that cartoon mega mind. He always won all the battles. I always almost won some. He can't admit to losing. Humility dictates that sometimes you say, I don't think I understood the text quite that way. It makes sense now, rather than there are five schools of thought. No, it's not always theology. Five. And I like to argue this way. Are all five right? Are all five right? Does the passage mean all five? Are you poor in spirit? But here is what some people say. When, for instance, the elders are dealing with the issue of sin, you get comments like this. Just be lenient. Who is not a sinner? We know that. We know that. That's the reason we must deal with sin. Because we are all sinners. Unless we deal with it, it will get worse. What we have in this beatitude is a contrast between the proud and the humble. It's between self-exhortation and self-abasement. It's contrasting pride, self-importance, and evil ambitions to being unassuming. What Jesus is teaching us in this first beatitude is that if we want to achieve wholeness of, and completeness in life, want to be fulfilled human beings, if want to be blessed in this way, if want to experience genuine joy, we must accept the reign of God, acknowledge our complete dependence on Him, and place our complete trust in Him. We do not only depend on God for life, we must trust in God for the meaning of life itself. Beloved, we cannot hope to become fulfilled whole people on our own outside Christ. If you're looking for fulfillment, it lies in Christ. In this beatitude, blessed. You can replace blessed with many synonyms. Joyful. In the word I argued against and I still argue in a qualified sense, happy. Glad are those who are poor in spirit, fulfilled are those individuals for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The first beatitude is resounded again and again in the scriptures. We read this and close there. Where else do we find this? In Psalm number 34 verse 18. Psalm number 34 verse 18. 
the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. You want the nearness of God? Be broken in your heart. Be poor in spirit. Who does God save according to that psalm? The crushed in spirit. Those who are completely done. There is nothing to stand on of their own. They are done. They need Christ to put them together and lift them up. Isaiah 57 verse 15. Isaiah 57 verse 15. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite. Notice the blessedness of such people. This one who is lofty, holy, and mighty, who inhabits in eternity, whose name is holy. He dwells in the high and holy place, but also he dwells with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite is his business. Isaiah 66 verse 2 All these things my hand has meant and so all these things came to be declares the Lord but this is the one to whom I will look this is the one I will bless. This is the one I'll be near to. This is the one that I'll have favor on. This is to whom I'll look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Now in all those passages, spirit is with a small s. It has to do with the state of your soul. A state of your heart. This is spirit as the immaterial part of you. The whole being of you. The emotion, the sense, whatever it is. Unless you are trichotomist, this is you. Not the physical, but the immaterial. The soul. The heart. The mind. Are you humble, beloved? Are you humble in spirit? Are you struggling with sin? Please depend on God to deal with it. Don't be stubborn. Don't justify sin. It does not matter how long you've lived in it. Let it go. Come to Christ. But are you sure you are saved? If you are not this, you are not saved. If you've never at a time said in your life, done, please save not saved. Oh, but for the saved beloved, we can sing. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. What a fortress of glory divine. This is my story. This is my song. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Is he? Here is a marker. Is only yours if you are poor in spirit. If you are not, he's not yours. And singing that song will be a lie. Make things right. Come to God in complete dependence upon him. Plead for forgiveness and plead for salvation. May we be poor in spirit. Amen.